Hello and welcome back to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and we're joined once again on this podcast by Dr. Alistair Roberts of the Theopolis Institute in the States to continue our series on the book of Revelation. And uh, this time we're looking at Revelation chapter 5. Alistair, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me back. Oh, it's always a pleasure. This is just a fascinating series. Uh, how does chapter 5 relate to chapter 4? It continues the same vision, and we can see ways in which the two chapters parallel with each other. The worship given to the one upon the throne, the enthronement in chapter one, in chapter four, corresponds with the worship given to the Lamb in chapter five. We can see the hymns, they could also be mapped onto each other. And so I think there are close relationships in the way that they move through a single vision and in the ways that they can be mapped onto each other. What actually happens in, in chapter five, Alistair? So John has this, um, there's this concern that this scroll that John sees cannot be opened. There's no one fit to open it. No one's been found to unlock its seals. And then John, as he's despairing of the situation, discovers that there is the root of David, the lion of Judah, who will be able to open the seals of the book. And so he sees the lamb at that point. We've been introduced to the lion. Now we see the lamb as one slain, and he's the one who's going to be opening the scrolls, and he's praised as the one who's fit and worthy for that. What, I wonder, is is the scroll or the book that John sees on the right side of the throne, and why is it so important? Yes, we're, we're left perhaps to speculate the description that we have of it, the fact that it's written on both sides, might make us think of some descriptions of the tables of the covenant, the tablets of stone that are written on both sides. We might think perhaps of the scroll, of Ezekiel. Here, I think it might, it seems to be some sort of covenant book, some sort of covenant document. And it's maybe also connected back with the book of Daniel's description of the sealed vision. So it's the, the promised prophetic word of God being unsealed and put into its effect. And so it's a covenant document that is going to be put into effect as the seals are removed. Now, we can speculate upon what exactly it involves, but I think those um, judgments concerning it are fairly certain. Um, so Revelation... The contents, I think, are revealed as we go through the prophecy that follows. Yeah, so Revelation then picks up directly on the book of Daniel. In many ways, and I think we have that within this chapter with the vision of the throne corresponding with chapter 7 of the book of Daniel. and the imagery of the cherubim and the or the living creatures in the preceding chapter reminding us of the beasts of Daniel. We might think about the final visions of the closing chapters of Daniel again being picked up here. The ascension in chapter 7, very clearly in view in chapter 5 of Revelation. So there are all these sorts of connections. And again, John's expecting you to know your Old Testament very well. And as you know your Old Testament well, a lot of the things that would otherwise be puzzling here will make some sense. You mentioned the ascension of Jesus. I mean, how, how does Revelation 5, in, in fact, show the ascension of Jesus, the Lamb coming into the throne room? The first description we really have of the ascension is given in the prophetic vision of Daniel chapter 7. 
the son of man who comes on the clouds to the ancient of days, to the throne, and he's given all authority and power and dominion over all the um, kingdoms, and he takes the place of the beasts. And that fundamental vision provides the backdrop for almost all of what we see in the book of Revelation. Revelation is playing out the meaning of that vision in a much greater detail. And so if you want to understand Revelation, go back, reread Daniel chapter 7, and if you want to understand Daniel chapter 7 and the rest of Daniel, you can listen to our discussion of that book. But Revelation is working with that vision. And we can see the way that the Lamb is playing out the role of the Son of Man within that earlier vision of Daniel. How is the Lord Jesus actually described here in chapter 5? He's the root of David. He's the line of the tribe of Judah. He's the Lamb the one who is as one slain. He's the victorious one. And in all of these ways, he is depicted as one who's fit to, op- the one who's worthy to open the seal. He's uniquely in the position to open and set in motion the covenant purpose of God. And so why does Jesus take the book? First of all, he's the one who's fit to open it. And so he's going to be the one who opens the seals of the book in sequence. There are seven seals. And in the chapters that follow, we see that sequence of seven seals, which will be followed by another cycle, which is the seven trumpets, and then followed by the cycle of the seven bowls. But this is the history that's, or the event that is going to be set in motion by the Lamb, who's the one who has opened up this new period of history. And as a result, he's the one who, as a result of his sacrifice, can open the closed prophecy. We see at the very end of the book of Daniel, this sealed vision. And it might be what's in view here, this opening of the vision. And now we can finally have the end the fulfillment of God's promises. What I wonder is the uh, significance of the lamb imagery here. And indeed, the lamb image is so important in the book of Revelation generally, isn't it? And not just in Revelation. If we go back to the Gospel of John, Christ is introduced as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This image of the lamb is a very pronounced one. Many people focus, I think, very much upon the natural symbolism that we might associate with the lamb, the lamb who's meek and who doesn't have any sort of, isn't any threat. But we should maybe think of the lamb in terms of the visions of Daniel, where you have beasts who have power and authority, and the symbolism is not necessarily to be understood in this narrow natural symbolism drawing upon the natural features of those beasts um, in their meekness or their domesticity. When we're thinking about the lamb here, maybe we should think about it as akin to the ram of Greece or something like that that we encounter in Daniel chapter 8. Here, it seems that the lamb has the authority of the lion. He's one who represents Christ as the one who has sacrificed and given himself. He's the one who's slain. He's the Passover lamb, perhaps. We might think about the way that not one of his bones will be broken is seen as a prophecy that's fulfilled in the context of the crucifixion. Christ, like the Passover lamb, Christ's death in association with the death of the past, the 
killing of the Passover lambs. And Christ introduced to us as the one who's the fitting sacrifice for this deliverance of the people of God. Why is the Lord Jesus described as having seven horns and seven eyes? Yes, we might we might wonder again as we go back to the visions of Daniel, we find the same sort of imagery of horns, authorities, and um, think about the eyes associated with the spirit. We thought about the seven torches or the seven stars in the hand. Those, I think, can be connected with the seven eyes of the, the lamb. And what we see, for instance, in Daniel, in the corresponding features of the beasts and the other images that you have of these nations in the chapters that follow can be seen, I think, here in the way that the lamb has corresponding features with the vision of Christ that we've encountered in chapter one. Christ, who holds the seven stars, corresponds with the lamb with the seven eyes. Mm, fascinating, isn't it? Why do the elders hold harps and golden bowls of incense in verse eight? That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, so it seems to be a broader temple vision. We can maybe think back to the way that David set up this wider structure of temple worship with singers, with Levites performing a, a wider range of roles. It's a glorification of the original order of the tabernacle in that interim period before the establishment of Solomon's temple. And so something similar here, perhaps, you have a broader array of people participating in what's taking place. The elders are participating in worship. They seem to be leading the worship. Maybe think about the Levitical singers and other uh, characters who are involved within this um, glorification of Israel's worship under the old covenant, where formerly worship that didn't involve song and music is now given music to accompany its words. And even in many cases, didn't seem to have prescribed words associated with it. Now it has song and glorified speech. Yes, I was going to ask you, you've probably already answered it, but what, what is the significance of the new song in verse 9? Yes, there's a number of songs throughout the book of Revelation. And we can maybe think back to the ways that song, songs play an important role within the story of salvation. Think, for instance, of the song of the sea after the deliverance at the Red Sea. Moses sings this song that memorializes that event. And then there's the antiphonal response of Miriam and the women who respond about the, the Lord as the victor, the throwing the horses and their riders into the sea. This is picked up at various points in other parts of scripture, not least in the Psalms. And there's a sort of remixing of that great song of the sea. We can also think of the um, testamentary song of Moses at the end of the book of Deuteronomy that is a sort of prophetic song that Israel would sing and would bear witness to them concerning the covenant. And so songs played a very important role within Israel's life in memorializing great covenant events and in testifying to them concerning the covenant more generally. Now, of course, this is most seen in the book of Psalms, where there's a, a, a large array of songs that are the songs of the king. And they're also songs that represent particular occasions in Israel's life, perhaps songs of ascent that would be sung maybe as you're going up towards Jerusalem. You might think about songs 
that would be associated with coronation, for instance, maybe something like Psalm 1 or uh, Psalm 2 or um, Psalm 110 or Psalm 45. These are associated with particular events within the life of the nation. And as we go through scripture, we can see this glorification of speech, this use of song in special occasions. Um, and it's also picked up within the Gospels. At the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke, especially, we see the events of the um, incarnation and the events of the births of John the Baptist and Jesus, the presentation of Jesus in the temple, punctuated by expressions of praise in prophecy and in song. Again, hearkening back perhaps to the prophecy of Isaiah, which is filled with these punctuating songs of praise that you have the declaration of the prophetic promise. And then there is this response of praise. And I think we're seeing something very similar here. As those events of salvation are being played out, there is this natural response of praise that is given within the heavenly realm. And what do the elders actually sing? So they've praised Christ for his worthiness in being the one who is able to take the scroll and to open its seals. And they praise him for his sacrificial death. Now, we can think back on the preceding chapter and the way that there is a sort of parallel between the worship that we see of the Lord in the very end of chapter four and what we find here. There's a praise of God for his creation. And here there's a praise of the Lamb for his redemption. Can maybe think to the ways that events of redemption and events of creation are memorialized in things like the Sabbath. In the book of Exodus, the fourth commandment is justified by its memorialization of creation. The Lord rested on the seventh day. And in Deuteronomy chapter five, the rationale for the fourth commandment is the redemption from Egypt. And so what we have here is maybe something similar, um, celebration of the Lord's creation and then celebration of the Lamb's redemption. And those two things side by side and very clearly paralleled in a way that associate the Lamb and um, the Ancient of Days, the, uh, the, one of, the enthroned one of the preceding chapter. Does the Lord Jesus bring music into heaven? You can maybe um, see music in um, something like um, Isaiah chapter 6, but there is certainly a, an increase of music. We might think about the fact that David is the musician. His establishment as the one who bears the Spirit of God is connected with his bringing of music into the court of Saul and changing the Spirit. Christ's gift of the Spirit is maybe associated with a sort of gift of song. And Christ is the one who brings songs to people's lips. Think of the way that I described the opening chapters of Luke, where the angels sing. You have the prophecy of Zechariah as his lips are opened. You can think about the song of Mary in the Magnificat that we sing within our churches. Think about the words of Simeon and all these other participants who see something of the glory of Christ and their instant response is to break forth in, in praise and worship. Christ is the one who's the king who sings in the midst of his brothers. And 
we sing as those who are singing the words of the king, of David, but ultimately of Christ himself. We see at many points within the Gospels, and most notably in the context of the cross, Christ takes up the words of the Psalms as his own. I think you probably already partly answered this in an earlier answer, but how does the sequence from speech to song retrace the liturgical development of Old Testament worship? So I've noted before, in the original tabernacle worship, there isn't really mention of any song. We do have song in something like the Song of the Sea. We have song in the Song of Moses, but we don't really have much of a liturgical role for these things. Psalm 90, of course, is the great psalm of Moses. So maybe there were psalms and songs in certain covenant ceremonies or certain contexts. But for the most part, the worship of Israel did not seem to be a context of song. After the coming of David, there is an introduction of music in a way that there wasn't before. We noted the presence of trumpets on particular festal occasions, the Day of Trumpets, also in the announcement of the Year of Jubilee. Then you also have music or sound associated with the high priest who had bells connected to his garments. But for the most part, song is introduced by David. Um, David reforms the worship of Israel as he establishes the shrine for the ark within Jerusalem. Israel's worship is divided between two sites, the shrine in Jerusalem for the ark that is brought into Jerusalem by David and the tabernacle, which is elsewhere and has the sacrificial worship, but without the ark at its centre. We can think about that in the light of the fact that the worship of Israel was divided after the Battle of Aphek, the capture of the Ark by the Philistines, and the fact that after the return of the Ark, it was never reunited with the the rest of the tabernacle. So the tabernacle had sacrifices continuing within it, but no Ark presence in the heart of it. And so it's only with the the temple of Solomon that you have that reunification of Israel's worship. But within the reign of David, David sets up song, whether in his composition of many of the Psalms and his, really his name is connected with the whole collection, and also with his establishment of the Levites, the singers, and in other musical roles within the worship of Israel. What's the significance of Jesus' blood there in verse 9? Pretty central to the whole passage. Yes, and this is something that we'll see throughout the book of Revelation. The victory of the saints is achieved by the blood of the Lamb. In chapter 12, we can think about the um, blood of the Lamb as that which washes the garments white in later chapters. These are all things that are connecting victory with the blood of the Lamb. Christ is the lion of the tribe of Judah. We might think of that primarily as the one who's the conqueror and this vision of the one who's trampling the blood and that imagery that takes up the beginning of Isaiah chapter 63, perhaps. We see that imagery later on in chapter 19 and elsewhere. He's the one of the white horse. And here he's the one who has sacrificed He's the one who has achieved the victory by his own blood. And martyrdom will be a pervading theme for the book of Revelation. Bearing witness, but bearing witness unto death. And the Lamb is the one who has gone before all of the others in this regard. And his followers, the ones who are shaped by him, are going to follow in the same 
footsteps, they are also going to lay down their lives. They're also going to sacrifice their blood. And so by his blood, he opens a way for us. And by his blood, he is the one who is victorious over the evil one. Uh, we better deal with the myriads of angels. This is a magnificent description here. How is the reference to myriads of angels in verse 11 a reference back to Daniel chapter 7, I wonder? Yes, in Daniel chapter 7, we have really the foundational throne vision that really underlies so much of what we see here. And within the earlier part of the vision, we've already seen the four living creatures. We've seen the 24 elders. We suggested the possibility that what you have are the four living creatures associated with four cardinal directions and perhaps six elders associated with each so that there are seven at each one of the cardinal directions, seven times four, that glorious fulfillment of the whole, the four corners of the earth represented by seven, that number of perfection with the living creature representing, as it were, the sabbatical creature for each one of those um, coordinates. Now, we can think in this description of the broader scene as panning back and seeing the greater worship of heaven. This is not just four living creatures and 24 elders. There's just an innumerable multitude of angels and other heavenly creatures that are involved within this act of praise, who are worshipping the Lamb, who is associated with the throne. There's a sort of embodiment. The Lamb becomes in many ways the embodiment of the throne, the embodiment of the authority of God. And so the description of the lamb um, and the description of the whole throne scene around him, I think, is to be read theologically. Um, we can think about, again, the seven spirits before the throne of God. Now you have seven eyes in the lamb, and that connects with the spirit, I think. And so you've got a sort of embodiment of the throne within the lamb. And then all around the Lamb, you have this glorious um, throne scene that expresses just the majesty of this enthronement. Yes. In what ways do we, do we move into a cosmic liturgy there in verse 13? There is, in the concluding Psalms particularly, a sense of the whole of the creation being summoned to participate within worship. And here, I think we see something of that being expressed. And so you have, first of all, the living creatures that represent the whole of uh, the creation, summing it up. And then you have around that the 24 elders, and then you have the wider company of heaven, and then you have every creature under heaven. And so it's moving out almost in concentric circles to include, to encompass the whole of creation. This is a vision of how things really ought to be. And I think when we're seeing things from above, we're seeing the ways that things really are when they're understood in their proper aspect and the way that things will be conformed to in the perfection of all things. Yes, I've written down a quote from Peter Lightheart's commentary, which I love uh, to do with threes and fours. Creatures from the four zones of creation offer fourfold praise to the lamb and the one enthroned. The elevation of the lamb has made God four. To the enthroned one, the living creatures sing in threes, triple sanctus. 
Once they add the lamb to their praise, the praise becomes a four. Blessing, honour, glory, dominion to the lamb and the one who sits on the throne. It's amazing, isn't it? I love that quote. It, it really is. And it's a, it's a remarkable scene that because it's a liturgy, it's very structured and it invites close examination. The um, patterns of numbers and other things like that reveal a lot. And I think it's for this reason that it rewards the sort of attention that the whole of the book of Revelation rewards. And as we close, I have Handel's Messiah in my playing in my mind. Worthy is the Lamb, the very end of Handel's Messiah. Fabulous. Alistair, thank you uh, so much. Dr. Alistair Roberts of the Theopolis Institute in the States. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes. Alistair, thank you so much. Thanks again for having me on. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com. <laughs>